please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. My sermon today will focus on the reading from the book of Revelation, the vision of the new Jerusalem and the life that awaits the faithful. The vision of the new Jerusalem occurs at the end of a sequence of visions described by John, a first century Christian and exile, who on account of his faith was banished to the island of Patmos. John's apocalyptic visions purport to unveil the spiritual realities that lie behind the very tangible struggles facing these early communities of Christ followers. These early Christians were often viewed with suspicion by governing authorities, and they were increasingly pressured by these authorities to deny Christ, or at least to give up exclusive loyalty to Christ by worshiping Roman gods and acknowledging the supreme authority of the Roman emperor. To give you a better sense of the sorts of trials that were facing Christians in this period at the end of the first century, I want to read to you a, let a letter that was written um, probably about 20 years after the book of Revelation by Pliny, the governor of Bithynia, just north of Asia or Asia Minor, which was the region um, where the churches were to which John was writing. So here is the letter that uh, Pliny wrote the Emperor Trajan sometime around 112 AD. I have made it a rule, Lord, he says to the emperor using the title that Christians would give to Christ. I have made it a rule, Lord, to refer everything to you about which I am in doubt. For who could better provide direction for my hesitations or instruction for my lack of knowledge? I have never been present at the interrogation of Christians. Therefore, I do not know how far such investigations should be pushed and what sort of punishments are appropriate. I have also been uncertain as to whether age makes any difference or whether the very young are dealt with in the same way as adults, whether repentance and renunciation of Christianity is sufficient or whether the accused are still considered criminals because they were once Christians, even if they later renounced it and whether persons are to be punished simply for the name Christian, even if no criminal act has been committed, or whether only crimes associated with the name are to be punished. In the meantime, I have handled those who have been denounced to me as Christians as follows. I asked them whether they were Christians. Those who responded affirmatively, I have asked a second and third time under threat of the death penalty. If they persisted in their confession, I had them executed. For whatever it is that they are actually advocating, it seems to me that obstinacy and stubbornness must be punished in any case. Others who labor under the same delusion, but who are Roman citizens, I have designated to be sent to Rome. In the course of the investigations, as it usually happens, charges are brought against wider circles of people. And the following special cases have emerged. An unsigned placard was posted accusing a large number of people by name. Those who denied being Christians now or in the past, I thought necessary to release since they invoked our gods according to the formula I gave them. And since they offered sacrifices of wine and incense before your image, which I had brought in for the purpose, for this purpose, 
along with the statues of our gods. I also had them curse Christ. It is said that real Christians cannot be forced to do any of these things. Others charged by this accusation at first admitted that they had once been Christians, but had already renounced it. They had in fact been Christians, but had given it up. Some of them three years ago, some even earlier, some as long as 25 years ago. Uh, note, by the way, 25 years ago approximately would have been when uh, Revelation was most likely written. All of these worshipped your image and the statues of the gods and cursed Christ. They verified, however, that their entire guilt or error consisted in the fact that on a specified day before sunrise, they were accustomed to gather and sing an antiphonal hymn to Christ as their God and to pledge themselves by an oath to not, to not to engage in any crime but to abstain from all thievery, assault, and adultery, not to break their word once they had given it, and not to refuse to pay their legal debts. Then they went their separate ways and came together later to eat a common meal, but it was ordinary, harmless food. They discontinued even this practice in accordance with my edict, by which I had forbidden political associations in accord with your instructions. I considered it all the more necessary to obtain by torture confession of the truth from two female slaves whom they called deaconesses. I found nothing more than a vulgar excessive superstition. I thus adjourned further hearings in order to seek counsel from you. The matter seems to me in need of good counsel, especially in view of the large number of accused. For many of every age and class of both sexes are in danger of prosecution both now and in the future. The plague of this superstition has spread not only in the cities but through the villages and the countryside but I believe a stop can be made and a remedy provided. In any case, it is now quite clear that the temples almost deserted previously are gradually gaining more and more visitors. The non-neglected sacred festivals are again regularly observed and the sacrificial meat for which buyers have been hard to find is again being purchased. From this one can easily see what an improvement can be made in the masses when one gives room for repentance. And here, very briefly, is the emperor's response. Busier man writes shorter letters. My Segundus, you have chosen the right way with regard to the cases of those who have been accused before you as Christians. Nothing exists that can be considered a universal norm for such cases. Christians should not be sought out. But if they are accused and handed over, they are to be punished, but only if they do not deny being Christians and demonstrate it by the appropriate act. In other words, the worship of our gods. Even if one is suspect because of past conduct, he or she should be acquitted in view of repentance. Anonymous accusations may not be considered in any trial, for that would be a dangerous precedent and does not fit our times. All right, that was long, but I hope you found it as interesting um, and as illuminating as I did, as we think about the kinds of pressures uh, that were increasingly experienced by Christians. As this correspondence suggests, there was not any systematic empire-wide attempt to snuff out Christianity, at least at this time, but there were growing pressures on Christ followers to abandon their faith and to demonstrate loyalty to Roman power and the prevailing ways of living and worship. Given this context, many of John's visions are meant to show early Jesus followers that suffering for sake of their faith does not constitute defeat, and such suffering is not in vain. Rather, suffering on account of their faithfulness is a kind of righteousness that is seen by God and that will be rewarded by him. Indeed, the Lord of the universe, the one to whom all will eventually be subject, including Rome itself, is, one, is, is himself one who achieved glory through suffering. 
In Revelation, Jesus is often depicted as a sacrificial lamb, one who gave his life and sacrifice to save us. Jesus's authority is not established by forcefully and violently prevailing over the authorities, at least not initially, it's complicated in Revelation, but his authority is shown through sacrificial giving of himself to the whole world, for the sake of the whole world. So John's wild and cryptic visions culminate in his depiction of the new Jerusalem, the city where God's loving rule and intimate presence with his people are finally and fully realized. The hyperbolic imagery in John's description of the new Jerusalem suggests that words cannot adequately capture the goodness of the life that awaits the faithful. But this does not stop John from trying to do his best to convey the glory and riches of the future that God has promised. To understand the significance of John's description of the New Jerusalem, I think it would be instructive to compare it to another city described close to the very beginning of the Bible. The story of this city is found among the stories of the primeval times before Abraham. You probably know the story. Here it is briefly from Genesis chapter 11. It reads, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and fire them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because the Lord there confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So in this story from Genesis, a society decides to build a tower that reaches into the heavens, presumably the dwelling place of the gods. The height of the tower may be intended to suggest to neighboring peoples that this city is where God and humans touch and thus that this group is the recipient of special divine favor. The building project is not an earnest attempt, it seems, to forge some sort of reciprocal relationship with God, nor is the impressive tower meant to satis uh, testify to God's greatness. Rather, the motivation is to establish a name for themselves, to convince all surrounding peoples of their power and importance. It is human glory, not divine glory, that is to be on display. Now, God's reaction to this project is, I must confess, somewhat perplexing. God does not simply condemn their hubris and self-aggrandizement, though perhaps pride is at the root, or the pride that is at the root of the project does ultimately explain why God opposes the tower. Rather, God expresses the concern that these people, united in purpose and mutual understanding, will be able to accomplish anything they propose to do. Exactly why this is bad is unclear. Perhaps the worry is that these people and their remarkable communal success will continue to grow even more prideful 
and in their power will fail to appreciate their dependence on God. Perhaps the worry is that these people do not have the wisdom and humility to appropriately use the tools and technologies that will soon be available to them if they persist in their technical advances. Perhaps the worry is that when these people set roots in a growing metropolis, they will fail to continue to spread throughout the land and thus fail to fulfill the charge given to humankind in Genesis 1, the charge to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Or perhaps God anticipates that as this single group grows in power and prestige, they will inevitably oppress their neighbors. Whatever the precise nature of God's concerns, God decides to confuse the languages of, his, of this group, undermining their ability to communicate with one another and to understand one another. As a consequence, the construction of the city is abandoned and the newly fragmented people disperse and form separate communities. Their trajectory of rapid technological accomplishment is disrupted. Turning now to the opposite end of the Bible, the New Jerusalem stands in contrast to Babel in some interesting ways. Most obviously, this city is not one that human beings have built to draw attention to their own powers and perhaps to reach God. Rather, the city is one that God has built. It is a city that is offered to God's people as a divinely prepared gift. If Babel was intended to stand as a testament to human power and might, the New Jerusalem reveals how small human powers are when compared to the divine glory. In a part of the description of the city in Revelation 21, which is a section that we did not read today, but just before it, the New Jerusalem is described as a perfect cube with length, width, and height, each being 12,000 stadia, or about 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles is roughly the distance from New York City to Dallas. That is how long, how wide, and how tall this city is. However tall readers of Genesis might imagine the Tower of Babel being, its size in relation to the New Jerusalem would be as a small stone when compared to a giant cathedral. Babel was constructed of baked bricks and mortar, good building materials that testified to human ingenuity and advancing building techniques. The New Jerusalem, we are told in Revelation 21, again before our passage today, is constructed of rare stones and gems, gold and giant pearls. The message is clear. The glory of humankind, even in, in its highest expression, is infinitely surpassed by divine glory. Having glimpsed the New Jerusalem, any attempt to match or surpass God's creative powers would simply look comical. God's excellences are altogether of a different order than anything humans could achieve. Nonetheless, the picture John gives us is not one where awareness of God's glory simply displaces awareness of human accomplishment. The beauty of the good things that human beings have done is not simply erased or forgotten. God's glory puts human accomplishments in proper perspective, but it also illumines those accomplishments. John says that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the city. And that people will bring, it, bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Recall that God's glory is itself the light of the city, light that shines through Jesus, the lamb, who is also described as the lamp of the city. But one thing that this light reveals is the glory and honor of the nations. God's light reveals the best in us, 
illumined by this pure and cleansing light, whatever beauty humans do have would be seen all the more clearly. While God's beauty and glory is unapproachable by creatures, beauty is not a zero-sum competition. Within God's incomparable city and illumined by the light that is God's own self, we appear more beautiful than ever. Moreover, if Babel was the occasion of humankind fragmenting into disparate and estranged cultures and peoples, the New Jerusalem does not involve a mere reversal where humankind is assimilated into some culturally homogenous whole. The linguistic and cultural diversity occasioned by Babel is not a face, rather it is celebrated even as it is transcended. The rulers of various nations and the nations themselves bring their glory into the city. Like, like ancient Rome of John's time or New York City of today, the New Jerusalem is envisioned as containing a vibrant mix of cultures, traditions, and groups. But unlike Rome or New York, uniting individuals across these marks of difference is the common reverence for God and devotion to the Lamb. All are bathed in God's light. All are marked with his name. All drink from the same river of life-giving water and all know their creator and worship and enjoy him together. United in this fundamental orientation, peoples and nations can maintain their distinctive identities without the risk that this diversity leads to a fracturing of their community. So this is a lofty and I think hopeful vision, but what significance might it have for us today? I suggest that one way we might shape and orient our lives in light of this vision is to ask ourselves this question. What can I, what can we do that might endure in the new Jerusalem? What can I help make that can be illumined and celebrated even in the city of God, that city where nothing can be false or unrighteous? This is a question relevant to all of us. But it may be of special relevance to those who we have in mind this time of year, those graduates closing one chapter and about to start something new, whether a new course of study at a different school, a new career, or even just a new stage in discerning what path to take. Whatever path we're taking, how can we do something that can endure in the kingdom of God? How can we in some way contribute to the glory and honor of the nations that John says is brought into the new Jerusalem? Of course, this prompts the question, what sort of thing is the glory and honor of the nations? Might it include music, books, buildings, folk dance, technological innovations, political institutions, universities, even cities? Might New York or ancient Rome say be included or in some way represented in the new Jerusalem? Or at least purified versions of these cities? Versions that survive God's refining fire that remove, removes the impurities? So I have no idea if these are the sorts of things that John understood as being included in the glory and honor of the nations. But whether or not such concrete cultural products are included, I think that we should not think of the glory of the nations as being limited to those sorts of things or that these are even central. Jesus's glory, recall, lights up the entire city and his glory consists principally in his humbling himself to love others and in his steadfastness and that love, even when it meant suffering and dying for our sins. Similarly, when we genuinely love others, when we show mercy, when we courageously speak the truth, 
When we bring sparks of joy into dark places, we make something that is worthy of being brought into the new Jerusalem. So much of what we do seems oriented to the passing needs of the day. Surely it may be thought the snack made for the hungry toddler will not be brought into the new Jerusalem. The accountant's well-prepared spreadsheet reporting some company's balance sheet will not, we may suspect, be an object of celebration in eternity. I don't anticipate that anything I've written or that I will write as an academic will be in the libraries of the New Jerusalem. But people will be there. And I suspect that we will see and celebrate those aspects of people's character that reflect God's love. And we will see and celebrate the bonds of mutual care and blessing that have been forged through courageous and compassionate actions. So when we reflect God's love and righteousness, the kinds of people we become and the relationships we build when we carry out our mundane tasks may very well endure in the new Jerusalem. So even if tasks that seem squarely focused on the passing needs of the present day, um, even in such tasks, we can still ask how we may live in ways that add to the glory of the new Jerusalem. Here then is my encouragement to all of us. Ask God how you might cooperate with God to grow in your heart and in your relationships something that is beautiful and worthy, something that may endure in the new heaven and the new earth. This task of building for eternity is not something we do on our own. In our gospel passage for today, Jesus speaks of sending the advocate, the Holy Spirit, sent to us by the Father and Jesus, in Jesus' name will teach us everything and call to mind what we have learned from Christ. In seeking to become people and to form relationships that are worthy of eternity, we work with one another in a community and we are also promised help from the spirit. God already dwells with us and in us, preparing to dwell with him, preparing us to dwell with him, showing us opportunities to embody God's love to others. If our reading from the book of Acts is indicative of how this might work, God's guidance can sometimes be clear and dramatic. Paul has this vision of this man from Macedonia saying, come help us. And of course, Paul courageously goes. A few days later, after being in, uh, was it Philippi? I don't have the reading in front of me. Um, outside of the city, Lydia hears Paul's talking to women there and converts in her life, her life of your community is transformed and something good that it can endure, transformed lives, new community, new relationships brought under uh, the Lordship of Christ is being formed, something that can endure. I think that God does sometimes communicate still to us in somewhat dramatic and specific ways. I want to share one example from my own life. There aren't many, um, but uh, a brief story before I close. So there's two moments in this story. The first was in 2002 when I was attending um, a Bible study in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I heard there was some remarkable um, prayer ministry happening there and I wanted to witness it. And so I went and their tradition was to give prayer to the newcomers to the Bible study. And so I was receiving prayer and various words were spoken and images given. And one of them that really stuck with me for some time after was this image of scissors cutting into some caution tape, but not cutting through, 
Rather, the scissors had cut into the caution tape and were running down the length of the caution tape. And at the time, a positive interpretation was given by the woman who was praying for me of this image, uh, connecting to something about um, my gift of not pressing, you know, being strategic and not pressing too hard when I'm um, sharing the gospel with people. Um, and it, that message rung true in certain ways and also was encouraging with various uh, steps in my own life I was considering um, or about to embark on. And so I took that forward with me in, in the years to come, this image of the scissors running down the line of the caution tape. But now fast forward 13 years later in 2015, um, I was at a retreat with my former church on City Vineyard. There was a time of worship. And during that time of worship, my mind went back to this image of the scissors running down the caution tape. And for the first time, I began to think about this as maybe a different kind of interpretation, maybe a new, a new interpretation uh, that would be relevant to me now that maybe wasn't entirely positive. You know, maybe it was a kind of holding back. Um, Maybe I was tempted towards a kind of cowardice of not cutting through that caution tape. And I began to think of this and maybe how this could be reflected in my own work as a philosopher. And I was about to embark on uh, writing a book. And, you know, am I in some sense writing for my peers? Am I edging up to what I really want to say, but maybe holding back a little bit to try to say things that are a little bit more acceptable? So these were running through my minds and it was this... Um, you know, revelation or insight into maybe there's a different way of thinking about this uh, that could be seen as a motivation to do something different rather than just an affirmation of who I am. So after this singing, when I was thinking through this, uh, we had this time of prayer where anyone in this group of 20 to 30 people could afterwards share anything they, led, they felt led in the spirit to say to anyone. Um, now I'm usually not the uh, recipient of such uh, spirit-led prayer times, but in this case, the first three people that spoke all had said, you know, I felt moved images or words to share with about John. And one of these women speaking, all of them had to do with some sort of, uh, with my writing, with um, encouragement to be bold. And, uh, and one of these women said, uh, you know, I think God wants you to cut through the caution tape use those words. I've never shared that image with anyone in this church. Um, I certainly hadn't shared that I, for the first time I was thinking through that very night that maybe I should be cutting through the caution tape. So here I had what truly felt and I still judge to be um, a kind of divine leading into a new way of being and writing. Um, that would be focused on building things that were more enduring, or be, actually I should just say being a kind of person that was more fit for the kingdom because I was answerable less to standards of my peers and more answerable to standards of the kingdom. Now I have to say, I'm not sure if this dramatically changed my book or my writing, but there have been times when I've been tempted to hold back, to be slightly more qualified or to weaken what I'm defending in order to say something that seems um, a little bit more likely to be satisfactory to my readers. And this moment has continued to encourage me to just be a little bit more bold and less worried about standards that aren't from God. And I have to say the value of this is not necessarily that the positions I defend in my writing, I don't want to 
suggest any kind of divine authorization. Uh, it's not that I think that those are more likely to be correct, but I do think that I have been somewhat less driven by fear of what others would think. To the degree that I was freed from inhibiting allegiance to standards that are not from God, I was perhaps made a little more fit for life in God's kingdom. And maybe that small degree of additional freedom has been an encouragement to others as well. So here is my prayer for all of us, is that we may be attuned to God's leading so that together we may live with compassion and courage, forming characters and forging relationships that may survive God's refining fire and endure in God's eternal city. In some cases, this may involve simple acts of kindness and compassion, acts that brighten an otherwise tedious or lonely day. In other cases, it might involve just the humble act of courageously saying a little bit more of what you think and less what you think others want to hear. Still, in other cases, living with our eyes on the New Jerusalem could require martyrdom, as it did, no doubt, for some of the readers of John's book of Revelation. Whatever it requires, the spirit, our advocate, is with us, ready to teach us, to help us, to live as citizens of God's kingdom. Amen.